Do what? Can I do the intro? Yes, you can do, do it. Boo, Thank you. Hi, welcome back uh, to our podcast. This is the pilot, the pastor, and the part-timer. I'm one of your co-hosts, Alex, and I'm here with... I'm Gav. I'm Matt. And today we are joined with our first guest. This is Bob Spittler. Would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me today. I'm, uh, I was a born a Hoosier. I was raised and grew up in New Jersey and uh, got caught up in the draft, uh, the draft system uh, for Vietnam. And uh, after two years of college, decided to could fly in the Army, could fly helicopters in the Army. And uh, got out of the Army and went back and finished college and fulfilled a whole career of aviation, uh, aviation management at Indianapolis International Airport, and uh, part of that time was uh, eight years with ATA Airlines, Fort Lauderdale Airport, and Sacramento Airport. Cool. Yeah, cool. so that's, uh, so what did you do at the Indy Airport, just out of curiosity? Um, I was uh, managing director of operations. I had uh, that responsibility to keep the airport open and operating and uh Various operating departments reported to me, the uh, maintenance department, the fire department, police department, parking department, um, all of which kept me very busy and uh, keeping things running. Awesome. That's pretty cool. Nice. So uh, with the, you said you got caught up in the draft. So did you have any aviation background before that happened or... Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Um, at one time, I learned to fly, and had a um, I had a commercial single engine license and an instrument rating. So I knew I knew about flying. Uh, it wasn't necessary to fly helicopters in the army. You didn't have to have that to be selected. Uh, you were selected based on a testing program, and um, a review board, and your physical. And at, at that time, you could voluntarily go to the army and say, "Hey." Uh, I want to test for the flight program for helicopters. And they had, they had a program that said you could go in and do all the testing and the physical and the review board and see if you qualified. And if you did, they would assign you to a flight training class before you ever joined the Army. Interesting. That's, I'm uh, Currently right now, I am a uh, instrument-rated private pilot, and I'm working on my commercial right now. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's interesting stuff. I, I, I'm dead terrified of helicopters. I'd never fly one. They don't make sense to me. I don't understand how they fly. I, just, I, I don't get it. But even, I can't... It even, shouldn't work. It shouldn't work. It's, but, like, I can't even imagine. Because back then, that was still, like, experimental technology. Like, that was the first time they were fully, like, mainstreaming them to become the new yeah. flight technology. Was that, like, scary at all? Yeah, the... Uh, um Flying helicopters didn't scare me, although, you know, it's fairly common knowledge that among among aviation pilots that a helicopter's harder to fly than an airplane is. And the primary reason for that is there's a lot of torque going on. And an airplane, for example, if you just uh, close your eyes and let go of it, it'll fly it'll fly straight straight along by itself. Mm-hmm. It's much more stable. A helicopter won't. If you uh, if you let go of the controls in a helicopter, it'll fall right out of the sky um, because of the torque and this. You just don't have the stability as you do in an airplane. So, no, it didn't. It didn't bother me any. Uh, I was flying in a pilot and wanted to fly. So even I, even when you wanted to like hover, you you still had to maintain control. Like letting go just wouldn't cause it to hover. It would just fall out of the sky if you let control. 
Yeah, it would fall out of the sky if you were hovering or flying, flying along 125 miles an hour. It, yeah, it'd fall right over and uh, crash. That's crazy. Yeah. So starting your what did you uh, start flying when you began your aviation career? Uh, I've started flying when I was about maybe 19 years old. I had a brother. My older brother was an aviation nut, and he could fly before he could drive a car. He uh, went down to get his driver's license one day and stopped at the airport on the way back and soloed because you had to be 16 years old to solo. And so he could solo the same day he could get his driver's license. And so I kind of was around aviation uh, as I was growing up. And uh, that kind of following him, that's how I get into it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, nice. So I started it when I was 19 as well. Yeah. So I've been doing it for a little over a year now. I've got like 200-something flight hours. But mm-hmm. not a whole lot compared to you. But <laughs> not nearly as cool stories. Not as nearly as cool stories <laughs> yeah, either. Yeah, it's not as cool stories at all. But uh, so uh, that's pretty interesting. Do you have your... Com- no, you have your... I'm working on my commercial. Working on your commercial. Right I remember now, when yeah. you got your private, and that was a big deal. Do and what? then you got your... What was the second one you got? Instrument rating. Instrument rating. And that was a big deal. Yeah. I didn't like doing instrument. Instruments are very difficult. What's the difference? So you have private pilot, which Bob can attest to this because he, he understands this stuff as well. So you have VFR flying, which is visual flight reference, which means you're flying by looking outside. Yeah. Private pilot's all based on flying just by looking outside, okay. using ground reference maneuvers, just learning how to fly the airplane, doing basic maneuvers, basic landings, some performance landings if you need to land on a grass field, short field, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, pretty straightforward stuff. It just basically teaches you how to fly a plane, and you know if you get yourself in a situation or get, getting you comfortable to fly the plane cross country long distances, and if anything happens, you know you know how to handle it. Yeah. Instrument is okay, cool. You know how to handle the plane by looking outside. Now learn how to fly the plane without being able to look outside. You fly the plane just by looking at your instruments. That's all you can look at. So, they give you like special goggles too. Yeah, we have. They're called foggles. I don't know if they had those back. Yeah, foggles were basically you put them on. It's like blinders that horses wear. So all you can see is what's directly in front of you oh, on fine, the instruments. Oh, you can't fine. see outside at all. He showed me them one time. They're pretty oh, interesting. They, it's it's not a fun time. But I spent I spent a long time. I I struggled a little bit with instrument because a lot of it, like with private pilot, it's it's more your instinct and like all the tests and everything is based off like what do you think the correct action should be and it's common sense stuff you know if your engine fails what are you going to do well you go through your emergency procedures you pick a place to land and you land the airplane yeah when it comes to instrument there isn't any of that it's all it's by the book by the rules you have to have it memorized and that's when it gets complicated because it's like I, I like common sense is one thing memorizing stuff out of a rule book is way different yeah I could never do that it's it's complicated we know Alex we know but yeah, yeah so I'm glad to be in a commercial where it's a little bit more entertaining and a little bit more fun where he has to do his crazy maneuvers and stuff like that but I couldn't imagine doing half this stuff in a helicopter I really couldn't yeah you talk about memorizing uh, I remember in flight school uh, we had to memorize the checklist in a Huey, and a Huey checklist of 65 pages. And wow. uh, <laughs> we could zip right through it, though. You learn your way through that cockpit pretty pretty well. Uh, my checklist for my uh, Diamond DA-40 that I fly is half a page. <laughs> <laughs> Austrian airplanes. Nice. Man. And you struggle to remember <laughs> that. Oh, sorry. No, man, no, no, I no, have no, to remember no, so no, much for this rule test. Books, rule books are different. The airplane is fine. I can get that plane started and down. It's to like the, the difference between the rules minutes. to drive a car and the operating manual for a car. Very, very different. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's so. I know they had different models of Hueys 
then what? So what specific model did you fly? Because I know they had the UH-1Bs, Cs, Ds, yeah. all that kind of So which one did you fly? Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, everybody knows in the Vietnam War, the big the helicopter that everybody used was the UH-1, A, B, C, D, so on, uh, called a Huey as a nickname. And um, my hours were in a C model, a C model Huey, and it was designed specifically to dive at steep angles and shoot rockets and guns and attack. It could not lift. These these helicopters were, the C-model gunships were so loaded with ammunition and fuel and rockets, they wouldn't hover. You had to just kind of scoot them around uh, until you could get headed into the wind and then kind of slide the helicopter across the ground Till you got going about 15 miles an hour, and then it would break ground and begin to fly. Um, that's called translational lift, and it wouldn't fly until it got out to where the front of the rotor blade was cutting into clean air. While you're sitting still, it's rotating the air under the rotor, but if you can get going 15 miles an hour scooting forward, it lifts off the ground, then it would fly. And uh, that got a little tricky sometimes. Now, the helicopters in Vietnam uh, had different missions. And when we talk about the Hueys, uh, the ones that the public identified a great deal with were the medevac helicopters. They had the Red Cross on the side, and the enemy wasn't supposed to shoot at them. And they would go in and and land quickly and grab the wounded people and uh, the wounded soldiers and get them out of there. And those were medevac helicopters, and they were unarmed. Then the next level you had were called slicks, and a slick they were called a slick because they didn't have heavy heavy guns and rockets. They were called slicks, and they did all kinds of things. They could carry troops, they could carry uh, supplies, they could carry uh, the high-ranking officers, they could go down somewhere and pick people up and take them here and there and run missions and and. Um, and then the third category, which I was in, was gunships. And the gunships were armed with 2.75 uh, rockets and miniguns, and um, they were designed strictly for attack. We, we usually didn't get called out unless somebody was in big trouble and they needed close air support, and we could help them a great deal. We could shoot within 20, 20 yards of them. We could shoot close enough within 20 yards of the friendly guys, and that's what they needed because the jungle was tight. The enemy was usually very close to them, and they'd keep their head down, and uh, we could come in and get very close to them and give them the support they needed. Those were gunships, and so when you talk about the Huey helicopters, those are the three types, and those were the three missions, and they could be anywhere from a Model A or a B or a D. Nowadays, they have an H. Uh, but the C model had a different rotor system on it, and it was designed to dive in steep and shoot rockets. So two questions. You said with the medevacs, they, you know, the Red Cross, like the most, you know, the kind of the icon of the Huey for that time frame. You said that they weren't supposed to shoot them down. Did the mm-hmm. um, Viet Cong ever actually, you know, like go after them specifically, or was sure. it kind of like recognized as yeah. don't do that? Every day. Uh, okay. And so then, Red Cross, uh, it's against the Geneva Convention to fire upon medical right. personnel in the battlefield, but 
they didn't, didn't really even care. World War II and the Japanese and See, I don't think they Vietnam care. and the Viet Cong, mm-hmm. it just became big targets. I know specifically for World War II, the Japanese actually put premium bounties if you could uh, kill Seriously. a medic and bring back their helmet. They paid them double for it because nice. they were that big a target. So that's why the Marines and the Army back in World War II, they would get strip all the Red Cross markings off because you just became an instant target for snipers. They would yep. try to kill you over anybody else. And I'm sure the Viet Cong had the same philosophy. So the second thing was you obviously talked about armament. Did you ever have napalm on any of your gunships or no? No, we didn't carry napalm. That's what planes carried. No. Uh, normally, the, I believe... No, they, the napalm was dropped usually by the F-4 Phantoms. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you have yeah. the F-4s or the AD-4 Sky Raiders or Phantoms and all yeah. those and uh, your Thunder Chiefs and all them. Mm-hmm. So helicopters usually. So you guys, I don't remember what they had at S-59. So I know they have, nowadays they have the GAL-30 and GAL-30 or GAL-20 miniguns. But you guys just had the M-136 miniguns, right? That fired 308. Uh, yeah, we had the, we had the miniguns. Um, I had a minigun on each side of the aircraft and each... Uh, gun would fire. It had six barrels and was spun by an electric motor, and those guns were awesome. They would fire 6,000 rounds a minute. That's incredible. Uh, uh, they, they, y- you could pull the trigger uh, to one one set, set uh, the first indent, and they would fire 3,000 rounds a minute, and you could watch the tracers and once you knew you were on your target, then you squeezed the trigger all the way, and you got 6,000 rounds a minute. But once you squeezed it all the way, it would only fire for three seconds because if it stayed on longer, the, mer- the barrels would melt, and so it would trip out And um, after three seconds. And, uh, and what made it even better was those two guns would shoot wherever I looked. Um, they were. I had a thing on my helmet, so wherever I turned my head and looked, the guns the guns would aim oh, and really? shoot wherever that's I looked. Wow, that's really. Yeah. I, never, I didn't know they actually had the kind of technology. Really yeah, yeah, they didn't. They didn't like seeing us come. come around. I know in some games and movies that you see where they have like the sight post in front of the pilot, but I never knew they actually had the head tracking. Mm-hmm. That's really yep. cool. I never knew they yep. had the. Head but it wasn't. It wasn't know. like full 180. It was like probably 30 or 40 degrees. Yeah, so exactly. That's pretty cool. That's still really impressive that we had that because I didn't know that like came around and at that early on. I was like, I know nowadays like the craze so they have like the F thirty five where they have the full like a uh, synthetic visor where they can actually see through the aircraft outside. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous the amount of technology they have nowadays for that kind of stuff. But that's insane. Yeah. So you were talking about the specific model you flew the the C that didn't like to hover or fly around a whole lot. Uh, so when you went into flight school. Uh, did, did, was learning to fly the Huey difficult? Because I've heard that people say the Huey was difficult to fly. Some people say it was easy to fly. Did you think it was easy or difficult to to get off the ground and keep in the air? Yeah, well, you didn't get to the Huey till you got to advanced flight school. So when you started off, uh, you were flying a smaller bubble-type helicopter, reciprocating engine, and so on. Uh, so when you moved into the Huey, uh, there wasn't any big surprises. You know, the Huey was a turbine engine, with a governor on it, so you just rolled the throttle on all the way, and it automatically stayed there at that at that power setting and RPM, uh, and would correct itself. So you didn't have to manage the throttle like you did on a reciprocating engine, because um, you know on those small helicopters you're moving you're moving like a motorcycle grip to manage the power, 
you're managing a collective which changes the pitch on the blades, you're managing uh, a cyclic which is controlling your turns and yaw and bank, and then you're also managing your feet, and the feet are controlling the pitch on the tail rotor which manages your torque to keep the tail behind you. And you do all of that while you're juggling around with guns, rockets, and five radio stations. It's a little bit overwhelming at first. You can get overload. Yeah, you can get a little yeah. overload. Yeah, it, it can get real busy. And then that, when you get rounds coming through your cockpit, and it gets real busy. But, yeah, I can imagine. So I, with that, actually, you're saying rounds coming through the cockpit. I, I've seen pictures, and I've heard stories. Uh, did you ever lay flak jackets underneath your control surfaces where the glass was. I heard oh, a lot yeah. of guys did that oh, yeah. bullets from coming up. Oh, yeah. We had all those tricks. Yeah, we had all those tricks. We would put uh, chicken boards and flat jackets down in the chin bubble to protect that lower part and uh, stop rounds from coming up. And we sat in armor-plated seats, and um, we had armor-plated side panels that slid up along each side of us and uh, and a bulletproof helmet and then we would take our pistol and slide it around our holster and slide it around between our legs to offer full protection. Wow. Full protection. Full, full protection. Because I know there's a lot of guys that when they were in the helicopters like soldiers and stuff, they would sit on their helmets when they were riding in before they went into combat. So in case anything mm-hmm. came up, they didn't get their, you know, shot up through the butt. Yeah. So yeah. See, I know... See, a lot of movies portray stuff like that. So I think one of my more, or the most favorite movie I have when it comes to Vietnam War is uh, We Were Soldiers. Mm-hmm. I really like the movie. And they, I think they portray the Hueys pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, they did real well in that movie. Uh, the other one that uh, was talking about your favorite, my favorite was Platoon. Platoon was shot uh, the year I was there, and it was my unit. Really? Yeah. I just saw mm-hmm. Platoon for the first time about a month ago, mm-hmm. and that was, that was, man... That was a ride of a movie. It was intense. Yep. If yep. you guys have a sequel too, and I highly suggest it. It's a, it's a movie. It, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Alex uh, told us that you had been shot down. Uh, was it one or multiple times? Or yeah, twice. Can you tell us about that experience? Or oh, uh, you look up at God and say, "I'm gonna need some help here." Um. <laughs> uh, Helicopters got shot down a lot over right. there. Um, uh, sometimes you could get shot down and roll in and crash and blow up, and other times you can get shot down and you still have control of the helicopter and you can pick a flat area and get it on the ground. Uh, I was fortunate both the times I got shot down. I got shot in the hydraulic system and uh, on a C model, on a C model gunship, the way the new rotor system was. If you lost hydraulic pressure, you couldn't you couldn't move the stick. You would bend the stick before it would move the controls. So as soon as you got shot in the hydraulics and your Christmas tree your Christmas tree started lighting up, you, you had to get on the ground immediately, uh, or you risked uh, the controls freezing. And so, um, both times I went down, I took rounds through the hydraulic system. I went down another time. I've had in fact, I've had practically everything that can happen in a helicopter happen to me. Wow. I've I've actually gone down, uh, I think, seven times. Uh, twice I was shot down, but once the engine quit on me at midnight, 
uh, on the north edge, uh, over um, north edge beyond Saigon, and went down in a rice field and had no engine and no tail rotor. Uh, when the turbine surged, it surged before it quit, and when it surged, it snapped the tail rotor drive shaft. So wow. went down in a rice field at midnight with no engine, no tail rotor. Uh, one time I was flying a little helicopter in Vietnam, a little one of these little bubble things, mm-hmm. and uh, I took off, and I pulled in the power to take off, and the throttle locked in the full open position. And so as I was climbing out, I realized I couldn't put, I couldn't reduce the throttle. So all I could do was climb, and I kept getting higher and higher, and finally I realized, uh, you know, and Matt, you'll appreciate this being a pilot. I finally had to make the decision that the only way I could get down was shut the fuel off. <laughs> so I stall the engine out. Huh? So I called a mayday into the tower and had them clear the runway. And uh, I got lined up and shut the fuel off, and I auto rotated onto the runway. But uh, that was a big decision. I still wake up in the middle of the night screaming sometimes wow. for that one. That's one of those ones that's like you know, it's it's that. That uh, you got you got to think about it logically. Like, I'm, the engine's not stopping. I can't get it to stop. What's well, the only thing that's going to stop the engine? It's you know fuel. The engine stops. Cut it. fuel. Yeah. yeah. That's what they tell us when we have engine fires. The way we manage it is first thing you do is immediately turn your fuel selector valve to off, and then just full throttle so the engine just cycles through all the fuel and stops getting anymore. Mm-hmm. So that way it just turns it off. Yeah. yeah. The more fuel you get into the engine, if it's on fire, it's going to keep burning. Right. So yeah, it's it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't know. That would be. I don't know what I'd do in something like that. Granted, in a helicopter, it's you know, plane full throttle. Yeah, you, know, you could probably manage that. But in a helicopter, you just it just full throttle means up, mm-hmm. not forward. That's just. I would like to say it since no one has said it. Seriously, thank you for your service. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Really, really appreciate what you guys did. I feel like you guys don't get enough respect for what you guys did. So just wanted to mm-hmm. say, really appreciate thank what you. you guys did. Yeah, there. thank you, Gav. So uh, when you got out of flight training, what was uh, the first thing you went and did? So actually, before that, where were you stationed at in Vietnam? Uh, I was based at Coochie. Coochie is about 40, 45 miles north of Saigon. Okay. And that division was the 25th Infantry Division, and they were their responsibility was to protect the northwest uh, side of Saigon area. And the reason that was uh, a difficult area is because the uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese could come down through the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos and Cambodia, and there was a there was a point in the border that stuck out into Vietnam, right down near Saigon, called the Parrot's Beak, and so they could come down and then come out on the Parrot's Beak, and that's the closest point they could get to go into Vietnam before they had to cross and come into Vietnam at the Parrot's Beak, uh, was near Tay Ninh, and uh, that became a, a nasty area. So my areas were Tay Ninh and, and, um, and the, a place called the Iron Triangle. Oh, wow. The Iron Triangle was a bad area because uh, we'd chase them around in the Iron Triangle, and they'd disappear. We could never figure out where they all went. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the time I was leaving Vietnam to come home, we discovered they had a tunnel under the Saigon River, and so we'd chase them around, and they'd get down in those tunnels and could cross over the river and come up in Saigon and blend in with the public, and we, we kept losing them. Well, I 
was crazy. I couldn't imagine that. Like, like that was probably one of the worst forms of guerrilla warfare we had ever seen at the time because it was just you'd be seeing a guy with an AK running once spot, he'd disappear in the trees. And next thing you know, he'd be in a town building with the rest of the civilians. You'd never see him again. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that stuff's wild. Couldn't imagine that. So your when uh, when was your so you got to Kuchi, which is where you were based at. So when did you fly your first mission, and what did you do? Well, um, the the first mission I flew uh, in gunships was uh, I went up with a guy, and I, of course, was co-pilot the first mission. I go up with a guy named Bill Higgins. He'd been there almost full full year. We all pulled one year. One year was your duty, and you got out after one year. You didn't get out of the Army, but you got out of Vietnam. I go up with Bill Higgins, and we're chasing around a couple of Viet Cong, and they... They run into a warehouse building, and the guys on the ground are telling us they're in the warehouse. They ran in the building, and so Higgins rolls in with his rockets, and he fires, he fires off a pair of rockets. And I don't, I don't see anything happening. I'm watching, and I don't see anything happening. So me, being the new guy, I said to him, I think you missed. <laughs> he says, I don't think so. So he circles around behind this warehouse, and the whole back wall was blown out. <laughs> what, what had happened was he put the rounds right through the roof, right. so I never saw anything blow up. It all went off inside. I don't and, think uh, so. Yeah, yeah he said, no, I don't think so. And uh, so that was my way to learn my first mission. But uh, yeah, It's not like the movies where everything blows up in a big ball of fire. Yeah, it's, no, not there. They went right through the roof. Nice, nice. So, uh, what is Brutus and Python? So, what are those about? Yeah, you know, uh, you remember, you got to realize you're in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of pythons, and the guys that had them all were the tank drivers. Oh, so pythons, you mean like Colt pythons, the revolvers? Or do you no, mean no, no. These snakes. are real pythons. Snakes. snakes. Not the guy. They had, He's talking about the snake. They had, yeah. had snakes? The snakes. Yeah, we had, yeah, we had, uh, we had cobras uh, that you Wait, stayed away from. in we, the tank? We had a green snake called a two-stepper because nice. if, uh, if he got you, you got about two steps. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were pythons. And the only guys that had pythons were the tank drivers because they could uh, – They'd always spot these pythons up on a branch in a tree, and the tank guys were the only ones that could go up and run over a tree and knock it down. So they'd knock the tree down, run up and catch the python. And uh, it, it wasn't at all unusual to walk up on these guys when they were taking a break, and there'd be a, there'd be a 14 or an 18-foot python laying right there beside them, their pet. Or if they were on the move, they put the python on top of the tank, and he wrapped around the turret, and laid up there on the engine by the engine where it was warm, and uh, they just rolled along with the they just pythons. You'd see one, and I'd back off, and they'd go, oh, he's, "He's okay. We gave him a dog yesterday. He's, he he ate just yesterday." So how do you make a, a yeah. venomous snake a, a a pet like that? Could like, you imagine how- not only making one of them your pet, but as you're driving the tank, it's just chilling, wrapped up on the barrel? I got I got to know about it. My buddy who we won't eventually have on here, his grandpa was a tank commander in M48 in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He was there for three years. Mm-hmm. And he got three tanks blown out from under him, and he lived through the war mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know how. But he, he saw a lot of stuff there. But, yeah, I got to ask, ask somebody if, about that. Ask him if, he had, if, they had, if his unit had a python. That's interesting. Yeah. Really cool. Huh. So what uh, 
Brutus. What is what is that? Oh, Brutus. He was great. Brutus was our dog. Oh, um, and Brutus had a lot of claims to fame. And one thing was, believe it or not, this this dog, he was about a medium-sized mutt, light brown. And uh, when we were on duty out in the scramble shack, and, and the way a gunship unit works like that is you have teams and and when you get a, you know, one team is number one team up and they're out in the scramble shack waiting to be called. And uh, then there's a team that's number two team and a number three team waiting to go. And when the one team gets scrambled, the number two team moves to the scramble shack and so on. So uh, Brutus would hang around with us out at the scramble shack and all of a sudden the alarm would go off and everybody would go run into the aircraft and Brutus would bark and run to the aircraft and jump right in with us. He'd jump in that C-Model Huey and ride with us on missions. And we'd get out there and be diving in, firing miniguns and rockets, and Brutus would be there with his paws up on the dashboard in the middle between the two pilots looking out front window, barking and raising Kate. He loved it. Nice. Wow. Yeah. We all deserve a dog like Brutus. Those are those yeah. kind of stories you just can't make up. I could just imagine that. Just oh, yeah. He, one, he was got a dog next to you barking it, at the enemy. That's and then he had, a, he had another popular uh, trait. Uh, he would, when we got bombarded with uh, rockets and, and mortar rounds coming in on us at, at the base camp, uh, everybody would run to a bunker. You know, you'd run dive in these bunkers. And... Um, and Brutus would run in there. He'd be right in there with us, you know. And then pretty soon it would let up a little bit, and some new guy would say, I think it's over. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I think it's over. I'm going out. We'd all, and we would all look at each other going, we ain't going anywhere until Brutus goes out. Nice. Because Brutus, right. <laughs> Brutus could hear the next volley on the way. Yeah. He could tell there were still more coming in. And, and pretty soon then when it was over, uh, you'd be sitting there watching Brutus, and he'd get up and shake himself off and, and walk out. And say, okay, it's all clear. It's all clear. <laughs> what Brutus says goes. <laughs> Brutus said it's okay. Listen to Brutus. Wow, that's – so did I, this is a question I had. So do you guys – so I know back in, like, World War II and fighter pilots and stuff like that, they had their own plane, and, like, that was their plane. Did you guys have your helicopter, or was it just you had a helicopter given to you for the day? And yeah, no, you took what was there that day. You don't have your own helicopter because um, they rotate through for maintenance and things, yeah, so and they, they get, get shot up get and yours is down. Like crazy, so yeah. another one. Yeah, yeah, uh, yep. That's exactly uh, that's exactly the way it works. Uh, talking about getting shot up, I, uh, you'd also find it interesting that we could go out and uh, do our thing and and attack the enemy and do what we're doing and come back. And we could tell, we could tell if we were, if we had taken hits because we could hear the rotor blade whistle. There was a hole in the rotor blade that would whistle uh, when you took hits. And so we'd come back and land and the crew chiefs would get duct tape and they would put duct tape over the holes. <laughs> we'd refuel and go back out and keep going. We could go back out. If, if the holes were in certain locations uh, not too close to the edge, you know, we could uh, we could put duct tape on them and go back out. So what was don't cover bullet wounds, but duct tape well. Duct tape, duct tape. Well. What was considered like? I mean, obviously, you know, hydraulics get shot out. You're going to go down. Now he's about to ask the same question I was going to ask. So what, what was considered too you know, shot up? Too shot up to go back out, like just refuel and go back out, or fix it with duct tape. Oh, 
I don't know, my buddy one time took rounds through the wobble plate, uh, called the wobble plate, that thing on top that allows the rotor to tilt. Yeah, okay. He took hits there, and, it's, and it fractured the wobble plate and cracked it in half. You wouldn't want to go anywhere with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you take a round through the engine, you're, you, there's no decision to be made because the thing won't even run. Right. Uh, you probably got shot down. But, that, but, the, but you the, could take a lot of hits in the helicopter. I was say, the body itself was made not super strong, so it could just take rounds constantly. Yeah, as long as it didn't yeah, anything important, yeah. you could keep you, going. You could take a lot of rounds. A lot of it, you could come back and count the rounds. You may have 20 or 30 rounds hits, but if it didn't hit anything critical, mm-hmm. you're, you're, going. you're still okay. Interesting. Yeah. So how long could they run on like one tank or whatever? The Oh, you could be out there an hour and a half or two. Yeah. Yeah. How long of a flight usually was it? So on average, whatever you guys got called out, how far of a flight was it from your base to where you were going and back? Oh, usually pretty close with, with you know, in, with inside a 20-mile range probably. Oh, wow. Maybe 25 because, uh, you know, you had areas of operation, and that's the yeah. area where you pretty much stayed because over here was another area. We were the 25th division in this big area of operation, and over here was the 1st division and up here's another division, and over here's the, you know, the the first cav division, and the Marines are over here, and everybody has their own area of operation, and that's that's how that works. That's, that's, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, because it makes sense because you know you want don't want to get anywhere where you're 45 minutes away from where you're at, and you want to be there for like 15 minutes before you got to come. Uh, back. no, no, you usually got back to your own base to refuel and rearm. Yeah, exactly. Because when you were out of when you were out of fuel, you were also usually out of ammo, so you had to come back and reload and while you're doing all that there's another gunship team probably following up where you were so just as you're following up and running out of ammo there's you know the other gunship team that was ready to scramble is probably coming right in behind you and uh, so is there any uh, this is just odd questions was there any rivalry between like other helicopter divisions and gunships and stuff where you, like between you guys yeah a little bit but you know you don't really see those guys there they're in their own op- they're in their own uh, company headquarters. I mean, we had other gunships based right out of Coochie where we were. Yeah. Other units had gunships too. Uh, you may not believe this, but I didn't live uh, with a poncho liner in the mud. I lived in the Coochie base camp with the 25th Infantry Division. There were fifty thousand guys based there. Wow! Ooh, dang. One site north of Saigon, 50,000 guys. And so the guys on the ground went in and out of there four or five days at a time and come back in. And there were Chinook helicopters and H-54s and Cobras and gunships. Oh, so you guys were gunship. in a massive base camp. Pardon me? You guys were in a massive camp. Oh, yeah. Coochie was huge. The 25th Division, big, big base camp, runway. So it was the base camp for the entire division. Yeah. And you oh, had wow. uh, you had a runway and a... You had a runway and airplanes and all this stuff. We had clubs and officers' clubs and bars and nice. barber shops and and the 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 local uh, people would come in during the day. We opened the gate and the locals would come in the day and do all our work. I had a girl, a hooch maid that I paid. I think I paid her. I don't know what I paid her. Twenty dollars a month or something, and uh, five dollars a week. You paid her. She washed my clothes, polished my boots, uh, kept made my bed. Uh, took care of my tidied up um, in my little my little area. I had a little area. My area. I lived in a hooch with a half a dozen other pilots. Yeah. But my little room pulled a curtain across. It wasn't any bigger than that bed, than a bed. 
And so she'd make my bed and wash my bedding and wash my uniforms and clothes and did everything. And Life of a pilot. They did her $5, $5 a week. And, and then at night, they all went back home, and we closed the gate, locked the gate shut, and, and they couldn't get back in then in, into the base camp. But they, yeah, they worked, some of them worked in the mess hall. They did all kinds of things. Did you guys ever worry about them maybe not being civilians and possibly being Viet Cong? Or? It's interesting you ask that. I went out. I went out one morning after uh, we had an artillery base, uh, an artillery uh, base at, um, that got attacked one night, and um, about 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 a hundred Viet Cong got hopped up on something and decided it was a great idea to yell and scream and bang on pots and pans and come charging across this open rice field to attack our military or artillery base. With 50,000 guys in it. <laughs> yeah, no, this wasn't at Coochie. Uh, this was an, uh, an outlying okay. um, artillery base. And so these guys with the artillery guns just lowered the guns down level and loaded them with beehive rounds and fired these beehive rounds, which shoot out thousands of these little nails called flechettes. Mm-hmm. They're like a nail about an inch and a, about an inch Ooh. and a half long. And wiped out. All hundred of these guys are now dead laying out in this field. Dang. I go out there the next morning. The sun comes up, and some of us went out there to see what they had. We go out there, and we rolled a couple of them bodies over, and they killed my barber. Really? Yeah. So I was kind of upset with them. But two of my very best friends got killed. The first one was a guy that I was in flight school with, and I was best man in his wedding. And then we went over to Vietnam, and he got killed after he was there two weeks. And then uh, my other other friend, uh, at the end of a year, um, they they called me in, and this other guy, George Grinnell, my buddy, they called us in and set us down and said, look, you guys, we still need help. We need you to stay six more months and um, stay six more months. And then we'll release you out of the Army, and you'll be done. You don't have to go back and put in your other two years. We'll release you right out of, out of the Army. And they said, George, George wanted to marry a girl in Hong Kong. So he said, George, for you, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll also rotate you right out of here after six months, and we'll rotate you back through Hong Kong. We'll let you pick up your girl, and you can take her back to California with you, and you'll be out of the Army. Oh, well, I said... I said, you have lost your mind. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. I, I left and uh, went back and was an instructor pilot at Savannah, Georgia. George took the deal because he wanted to marry that girl, and he got killed into his six months. He got killed about 90 days into the six-month period and got killed. So uh, he got killed and got shot down, so he got killed. But uh, and both of them got, got shot down. That's how they got killed. Um, you know, you might find... You might find it interesting what a, a typical mission would look like. Uh, we would get scrambled and and get out to the get out to the area where the battle's going on, and the guy on the ground's in kind of a panic, and his name's Bulldog, and so I call him. They give me a radio frequency. I call him and say, "Bulldog, this is Diamondhead One Zero. You know, how can I help?" And uh, 
He's in a panic. You know, he goes, oh, they've got us. Uh, we're pinned down. We can't lift our head up. And my, my radio man's been shot and my sergeant's wounded. And it goes on. I go, okay, okay, okay. Now just, okay, you tell your guys now, you tell your guys to keep their head down. I'm going to fix this. And we would come in. I brief my wingman. Say, okay, you got this. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. We know we know where they're at. He pops smoke and stuff. And we come in and we dive in and we shoot rockets and machine guns and we and we wipe out the problem. And these guys on the ground all stand up and they're raving and cheering and going, yeah, they're running, they're running out the east, they're going to the east, out the back of the woods, you know. And man, so we come around and roll down again. And then we shot everything up that we have. And so we, he goes, you okay now? Yeah, we're great, you know. And he goes, on. so we go back. And about five or six days later, his unit comes back into Coochie, into the base camp. They get a shower and some clean clothes and stuff, and they come back in. And he comes over to our unit, and he walks in, and he goes, I'm looking for Diamond Head 1-0. And they go, oh, that's a little guy, little guy down there sitting at the end of the bar. Which is you. See, yeah. So he would come in, he would come down and throw his arms around me and say, oh, my God, you guys saved our butt. He goes, you saved our butt. He said, we couldn't move. And I go, yeah. And he'll stand there for about an hour and buy drinks. And, and uh, so I tell people my job was, um, I did my job. And my job was to make sure a lot of our guys could come back home. It's one of those feel-good stuff. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. able to talk to the guys that were like, you know, thanks for saving our butts. Oh, yeah. Make sure. Yeah, they'd hunt you down. They'd come find me. <laughs> they'd come find you. Yeah, so you said after you circled back to the U.S., you were a uh, inst- flight instructor in Savannah, Georgia. Mm. So were you uh, teaching to fly Hueys, or was it the little Bell helicopters, or was it civilian? No, I, yeah, I was, I was uh, teaching uh, Hueys in advanced, advanced tactical training uh, to uh, students. I was getting them the last, I had them the last month they were in flight training, so when flight school, uh, when you started flight school, it was at Fort Walters in Texas, and you were there about um, you were there about six months, and then you advanced from there to advanced training. And when you went to advanced training, you, you either went to Fort Rucker, Alabama, or you went to Savannah, Georgia, Hunter Airfield in Savannah. Um, so believe it or not, this is hard to believe, but when I was over there in '68 was the busiest time, uh, the busiest time and the deadliest time. So they were producing 250 pilots a month were coming out of Fort Rucker, and 250 pilots a month were coming out of Savannah. They were sending 500 helicopter pilots a month to Vietnam. And so I was teaching advanced tactical flight training in Savannah was what I was doing. Dang I know, I think from stuff I read here, that 68 to 72 was when it was real, real bad. Because I know 69 was when the Tet Offensive kicked off, wasn't it? 68. It was in 68. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, you were there at 60. Did you yeah. guys get affected at all by a Tet Offensive? Oh, oh yeah, everybody got affected. My roommate got, my roommate got shot down in one day, twice. Got shot down twice in one day. 
What is that? Okay, so he could probably explain a lot better than I can. So if I messed something up, please feel free to correct me. But the Tet Offensive, it was the Tet New Year, which is what the Viet Cong, or not Viet Cong, what the Vietnamese people celebrate. And so the United States Army was saying, oh, you know, Tet New Year, they're not going to, you know, it should be two weeks or something like that. I just hopefully calm down, shouldn't be getting shot at too much. But it was the opposite. The North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong both said, Nah, we're not doing that. And they launched surprise attacks on almost every single American base in mm-hmm. North and South Vietnam. Yeah. And a lot of people died. Because so I know Quezon got obliterated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saigon got hit real bad. I don't know too much about Kuchi. Have you guys got hit at all? Yeah, we got, we got hit. Uh, I, I don't recall a ground attack. I don't think we had infantry people attack, coming at us on the ground. But we got a lot of mortar and uh, mortar round attacks and... Uh, 100 millimeter rocket attacks, yeah, and a, yeah, a 100 millimeter rocket attack. Oh, they're they're bad guys. We we had a guy one day, um, a brand new pilot, walked into our unit to check in, had his paperwork with him, brand new in his duffel bag, put one step to open the door to go into operations, and got hit with a 100 millimeter rocket, and disintegrated him. We didn't even know who he was. He hadn't even checked in yet. We didn't even know the guy's name. Bad, bad things. Bad things happen in war. Yeah. I mean, you know, not only, not only do you have the enemy to worry about, but there's so much massive equipment. Uh, you can get, you can get run over by a truck or a Jeep or a tank. Uh, you can fall off of things and that's it. I mean, accidents happen, and so I'm certain that a fuel blows up. A huge base like that, there's probably plenty of just accidents that. Oh yeah, killed yeah. By. There's all kinds of accidents, you know. Yeah. So my my brother was he's a marine. Well, he's not active. He served his years and got out. Um, I, I'm just curious. What what is your opinion on how war has changed over the years? Like, do you think that? I mean, obviously, war is never a good thing, but do you think it's become easier or harder for the guys going in now to fight for America? Well, you always have, you always have the controversy um, in a war of, do I have permission to shoot or, mm-hmm. or not shoot? You know, and to me, that was always pretty silly. I never remember asking anybody permission to shoot. Yeah. I mean, when, when we got called out to scramble, somebody needed to get it shot. Was, you shoot, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the reason we got called out. So I never had to, I never had to get permission from anybody to shoot. And, and I don't think the guys on the ground did much of that either in Vietnam. But, but in more recent cases in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and uh, those operations, a lot of times, you know, they've, they've got to make sure what they're doing and get, get permission to shoot. Once they're just walking along in right. an open area, you know. But if they're in a firefight in downtown, they don't they don't ask anybody's permission. If they get shot at, you know, they can return fire. Obviously, the new wars are all high tech, mm-hmm. high tech stuff. You know, I mean, they got guns that shoot around the corner now, and you know, uh, airborne ridiculous. Things. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they they just have remarkable things now that. That they can do the Apache helicopter can fire off a Hellfire missile and take out a tank right. that he can't even see. His eyes, yeah, he's got it zoomed in on thermals at like yeah. you know from two miles away. Well, yeah, or or he has his C one thirty up mm-hmm. circling around at twenty five thousand feet, look and shines a laser beam down on the tank mm-hmm. 
and tells the Apache, hey, send one, send one up to the north for me. And he leans back and sends one up to the north. It locks on that laser beam and turns and goes down and takes the tank out. So that kind of war stuff is going to be the modern, the modern wars. So this is so kind of changing topics off from old stuff I had. So I talk about AC-130s, it reminded me. So I know in Vietnam you guys had AC-47s. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see one of those in action at all? Or see one? Uh, no, you know, not not the forty seven, but the ones I remember uh, were uh, the C one twenty threes. Is a two engine, two engine, pretty pretty good performing carrier. And and you, I've been out in the jungle areas where the uh, engineers take bulldozers and clear a gravel landing strip and lay down some stone and, and build a halfway runway out of gravel with a circle at the end where the plane can turn around and when they bring troops in the pilot takes that plane comes in there lands reverses the props stones are flying everywhere the engines are roared the tailgates coming back coming coming down and he's making his turnaround at the end and these guys are rolling out the back because if you stumble, you just get run over. These infantry guys are rolling out the back of this airplane, and he's adding the throttle to it to take off, and the tailgate's coming up, and there's stones and gravel flying again, and he gets in the runway and pulls that thing back and hangs it on the props, climb, climbing out almost vertical, mm-hmm. and you just shake your head. The kid driving the thing's probably 21 years old, wearing, <laughs> a, wearing a baseball hat, and and when you see an airplane perform like that in combat, the way they're designed to perform, you know, you realize why why they're so expensive and what they're really designed to do. It's it's incredible. That's interesting. So I know in uh, during World War II, a lot of guys, uh, even whatever theater or they were in, would, uh, you know, stumble across a battlefield after a battle was over. They'd go and take stuff off the enemy, like war trophies and stuff like that. Did you ever experience any stuff like that with guys you knew? They would t- have anything interesting or anything that was kind of odd that had taken off an enemy? Yeah, uh, including me. We, we would take their guns, their, their AK-47s, because they all carried Russian AK-47s. If you remember your history, the, the M-16s that the U.S. had always jammed. I, actually, that was the question I was going to ask you, because I know a friend of mine is always talking about the M-16, and he really likes yeah. the gun itself, but... Historically, that the gun jammed. Is it as did it jam as much as everyone says it is? Was it really? Yeah, they either jammed a lot or guys guys to keep them from jamming had to clean them about three times a day to to keep them from jamming. Some guys were good at it and knew how to take care of it. Other guys uh, let it get away with them and they they would jam. But we would we had an advantage because we had gunships, so we we could uh, go out on a mission, shoot up the bad guys. And then have our wingman kind of circle around and protect us. We could go right down beside them, land, and take their take their AK-47s. I flew the whole year and had an AK-47 hanging on the back of my seat. Wow! Like with a sling and on the back of my seat because we didn't want to carry an M16. We were afraid of jam. Right. So we carried Russian. We had ammo and we had ammo and guns. And if we needed more, we shot up more guys. Went down, and got their guns. <laughs> That's but, uh, crazy. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I. I uh, I have a few firearms, and I do have an AK. It's not right behind no, you. No, no, no Russian stuff, but I do have a, an AK. I have, and it is behind you. But it's a yeah, that's a very robustable firearm. Do anything you want to that thing, and it keeps firing. Uh-huh. 
Interesting little gun. You can use it as a hammer. It'll still keep going. Yeah, it's 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 a good rifle. You know, say what you want about you know M16s and whatnot, but back in the day, those M16A1s, yeah, they had they had issues. But luckily, those are that's not the issue anymore now. Yeah. But yeah, something that we had kind of talked about before. Um, you had talked about like little tricks that you had learned about, like putting the flat jacket to the floorboards of the helicopter so that if the bullets came up. Um, you'd also written down a way that you heat your lunch. Um, would you like to uh, kind of talk about that or just some other, some other tips and tricks that you learned while you were yeah. out there? You know, you, you know that in the military you hear a lot about C4 and explosive where you can put it on the door and blow the door yeah. off and blow, it and blow yeah. up things and blow up anything you want with it. And it's, it's kind of like uh, Play-Doh, you know, putty. You can, it's soft. You can make anything out of it you want. But it also burns. If you want to blow something up, you have to stick a fuse in it and give it an electrical charge of some kind, and it electrical charge makes it blow up. But we learned that you could just roll it up like a cigarette and put a couple of rocks down and lay it between the rocks and light it, and it would burn. And you could set your can of sea rations on top of there and heat your lunch up real fast. I feel like it could go real wrong real fast though, because if you do it wrong, it could just blow up on you, though, right? Well, you, you didn't want to didn't want to charge it or get around electrical or a battery, but right, you, so as long as you lit it with a match, you so were I'm okay. Sure with C four, it requires an actual like detonator to stick it yeah. in, which is like you said, it's an electrical charge that sets off and it makes it blow. But you can light an explosive material on fire, and without a detonator, technically, it was burned. Oh yeah, everybody carried it. We carried it around our pockets, you know, and carried it around in case you know if we needed to heat up our mm-hmm. food. We all ate C rations in cans. C rations all came in different makes and models. You had turkey loaf and ham and beans, and you had all these different kinds. And guys learn you learn very quickly to trade trade up, try and try and get some other, try and get a better kind. But sometimes you got that, and sometimes you didn't. It's always interesting to hear those army ticks and tips and tricks that back in the day. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You ever hear of any ones that you never actually tried yourself, but you heard other guys doing that? You're like, that's kind of crazy. Uh, no, we did them all. Um, <laughs> you know, we'd also we you could heat your lunch up by putting it in the exhaust stack, and uh, and and uh, but you had to be careful of that if you had to get the helicopter there at idle and put your can of sea rations up in the exhaust so the turbine engine would heat up your lunch, but. You had to be careful if somebody get a crew chief in there and they turn the throttle the wrong way or something, it'd blow the, it'd blow the can right through the tail rotor. Ooh. And you didn't want to do that. Seems like lighting C4 is a little bit easier. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, there wasn't any other way to heat them. Quite frankly, if you were out there on the scramble shack, you weren't around anything. You had to take care of yourself. So, but, uh, yeah, I... Uh, I've had I've had some other cases when I was at Fort or at uh, Hunter Army Air Base as an instructor. I found myself one day. I was number ten back in line. We were teaching the students how slicks work, how they go in and land ten of them at a time with the troops on board. And I was number seven back in this flight of ten, and we fly in real close formation. You know, we're only we're only five or six feet away from each other the rotor blades, and so you fly pretty tight, and I was number seven back in this flight, and the engine quit, and so uh, fortunately, I was able to get it down in, into a field, 
walk away. Interesting. So a little curious. Um, so you express about the the many times that uh, that you were shot down or that you had to land in a rice field because of like engine failures. What were your next steps of like, okay, you know, I just had to land this helicopter. Now I have to walk back to base. What was that like? Oh, you know, oh, I never walked. I never walked. Uh, no, remember, I had a wingman. Ah. So what happens is you go down, um, and you're right. You're on the ground. You shut the helicopter down, or it quits, or it hasn't, it wasn't running to start with. And you get out. Uh, your door gunner, your crew chief. They got their guns, you got your guns. Now, remember, each of them have M60 machine guns in the door. So they unhook them and carry them with them. So you got two M60 machine guns, and the pilots have their guns hanging on the back of the seat, and you got a pistol. And so uh, you're talking on the radio, and your wingman circling around overhead so he doesn't lose you. He knows where you're at. And... Um, and then they, uh, he calls back to base, and they send out a slick. They grab a slick real quick and send it out because this – see, this – your wingman probably can't pick you up. If, if he comes down, lands, and has to pick you up, he has to unhook his rocket pods and probably throw his M60 machine guns overboard to make a, a light enough uh, load where he could pick all four of you up. Uh, so we don't want to do that. So what he does is circle in case you get in trouble – and he's waiting, and they send a slick out, and the slick comes in empty, and then he can pick you up and get you out so of there. When you, one of the few times you went down, did you ever run into trouble with enemies being around you? Or no. Okay. Nope. And the night I went down at midnight, the night I went down at midnight, um, there was a mechanized unit, an Army mechanized unit, fairly close by, and they came roaring down the road. And once it got called in through headquarters, and they told them, they come down the road and and uh, got into the rice field and came right into where we were at, and they circled the helicopter and protected it. Then the next morning at daylight, a Chinook came in and hooked onto it and lifted it out and took it back to base. I was going to ask that question. So I know it's like, you know, if a helicopter gets shot down or something or any type of, you know, you can't, any type of stuff you leave in the field that you can't bring back. I was want to ask, would you guys like, well, obviously you lifted it out and got it out, but I know sometimes they, uh, they cleanse them or they just blow them up. So they can't get it. Did you ever have to do anything like that with one of you once you got shot down? No, we were never trained to blow them up, but but we were trained that if you had to abandon the helicopter and leave it there and you were under fire and it was a difficult situation and you felt like uh, you weren't going to be able to save the helicopter, you were to take your pistol and put a couple of rounds through the radios so so the enemy didn't have our radios. Okay. Uh, it- we were more concerned about that than we were the helicopters. Did you ever have to do that? No, I did not do that. Because I know we World War II bomber pilots, when we had the Norton bomb site, when that was yeah. like insane technology, if they ever had to bail out and they were worried the plane might not crash, the bombardier was trained to put his pistol and take two shots to the Norton bomb site to make sure it didn't work. Yeah. So if the enemy ever got yeah. it, they would never know how it worked. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. And yeah. So the, uh, another question I had, which it's kind of odd, I don't think it would make sense, but so... Again, back to World War II, you had fighter pilots and all those guys that, you know, after a certain amount of kills, they became an ace. Did you guys have a system like that where after a certain amount of kills or missions or what, you, you became a, an ace? Eh. Well, each unit had kind of little things they did. In my unit, in my unit uh, if, you, if you flew a thousand hours, a, fl- a thousand hours of gunships and were still alive, you got a bell, a big brass bell, and they had 
the, all the other, all the other pilots that you were flying with, engraved names were on it, and it said one thousand hours gunships, and your call sign was on there and a bunch of stuff. Do you still have your bell? Oh yeah. I was like, you flew one thousand eight hundred hours. How much was it? How many hours did you fly? Mine. Yeah. Uh I think it was sixty nine. Wow. Let's see. I don't know. I have about twenty three hundred hours total. You were very off, Alex. Over over there, I probably had, uh, I don't know, twelve hundred hours, maybe. Wow, it's nuts. Maybe, maybe twelve hundred so hours. Off, huh? That's a lot of. That's I'm not so far off. A lot of hours compared to my like. I think I'm like 180 something now. Yeah. In my total flying career, well, I got a little bit more. You can have a million hours and still not be as cool as this guy. Exactly. Yeah. You know, no. you know, but when you're flying every day, oh yeah, they build up in a hurry. Oh yeah. In uh, December of '67, I was over there. In December of 67 and flew 12 hours on Christmas Day. Wow. I refueled while I was running and never shut down. Flew 12 hours in the seat. Dang. Did you ever get, like, cramped and tired from being in that seat? No. Were there comfortable no. seats? Huh? Were they comfortable seats? Yeah, they weren't bad. They weren't bad. You didn't worry about being comfortable. You were pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have time to think Fair about enough. comfort. They so photos. I know where I'm flying my little itty bitty plane. I'm just it, sitting along, and I'm there for more than three hours. I'm like, man, well, yeah. we're trying to seat back. Man, I'm getting a little butt starting to hurt a little bit. <laughs> no, no. You know, uh, no, I used to I used to tell people how impressed I was with B fifty two strikes. Oh and yeah, that is. You talk about B fifty twos a little bit. That is what, an insane airplane. When uh, when when we would be flying. Uh, First of all, I've been in briefings for B-52s, and I've seen, a, I've seen a commanding colonel tell the Air Force guys, okay, okay, I want you to take this area out in the Iron Triangle tomorrow or tonight. And in the morning, we're going to leave, and we're going to go up this berm, this dirt road. So don't, don't touch the dirt road. We don't want you to touch the dirt road because i got to go up there in the morning. We'll be driving our tanks and our and our APCs up this road. So don't touch the dirt road, but take out everything this side of it to the east. Okay, but don't don't touch the dirt road. Okay. So the Air Force guy says, okay. That night, these B-52s come over and drop these bombs, and they launch out of the Philippines, Guam, and come over. they come over uh, and drop their bombs. And I was probably in, I'm probably in bed, so these things, a B-52 strike will rattle your bed and knock, knock you out of bed. And so they drop half of them going this way, and they go way out, make a big turnaround, come back, and then they drop the other half of their bombs coming back, and then they head home. We go out in the morning, and this entire part of the Iron Triangle is annihilated, and all that happened with these bomb craters was it splashed a little bit of dirt up on the road. Pretty accurate. So those and they're dropping them things from 40,000 feet so or somewhere. B-52s, they're nicknamed the Strato Fortress. They yeah. are... Insane airplanes. I don't remember the exact number, how much ordnance they can carry, but it's yeah. a ridiculous amount. And you get up to like what ten to fifteen of them in one flight, maybe a little bit more of them. Yeah, dropping them. You can right you can erase an entire one uh, square kilometer mm-hmm. grid square just off the face of the and earth. What what you see also in the morning when you go out there is you'd see Viet Cong wandering around out among these bomb craters, just just aimlessly wandering around with blood coming out of both ears. So they were either underground or they were in it when it happened. They're just yeah. shell shocked. They don't have no idea what just yeah. happened. Now, as a pilot, as a gunship pilot, what we had to worry about is you didn't want to be out gallivanting around, get underneath one of those things. Mm-hmm. So the way the Army handled that 
was they called a B-52 strike an arc light. Yeah. That was the nickname, was arc light. So you'd be out launched on a mission. I'm, I'm heading on a mission, and I'm out doing something. And you'd hear on the, what they call the guard frequency, as you know, in airplanes, there's a guard frequency, emergency frequency it's, that it's everybody cool. can hear, or if you click it on, you can talk to everybody. They'd come on the guard frequency, and they'd say, attention, all aircraft, attention, all aircraft, arc light, arc light, arc light. And then they'd give the coordinates. And you would quickly grab your map and find them coordinates because you wanted to make sure you weren't underneath this thing because the arc light was going to drop in five minutes. That's the only warning anybody ever got. You got five minutes to get Get out. Five minutes. So you had five minutes to know where you were and get out of the way of that thing if you happened to be under it. So no matter where you were in Vietnam, when you heard arc light, you grabbed your map real quick and figured out where they were going to drop and got out of there. That's as close as you got to Did you ever catch yourself... Way too close to one of those? Oh, I've been close to them, but, I mean, I've gotten out of the way. Well, you, yeah, Better get real good at reading maps real quick. So then my question I is, is have, have you ever seen those get dropped like, while you're in the helicopter, like watching it, all of that? Ooh, uh, let me think. I don't know. I've seen a lot of bombs drop off of the other, the other airplanes. I don't think I've ever seen a B-52 drop. They drop a lot of the B-52 strikes came at night, and I don't know why they did that particularly at night, but it seemed to me like most of the B-52 strikes were at night. Because, see, they weren't in close air support. They couldn't drop anywhere near where there were any of our troops. So it wasn't something that was going on during a battle. They were dropping to annihilate an area. If the commander said, I don't want that area there anymore, he told the B-52 guys. All right, we'll, we'll just yeah, we'll remove it. We'll take that out. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah bad area. It's yeah, that's, that's the whole. That's what I found very interesting. We could see it was like, like you said, it's not. It wasn't close air support. It was okay. We we've been getting a lot of contact in this grid square, so let's just erase it off the map. Yeah, and hopefully they'll stop coming from there. Well, that's what happened to Lieutenant Callie. If you know the Lieutenant Callie story, he was an infantry guy, and the base he was at kept. They kept getting shot when helicopters went over coming into their base. They kept getting shot out of this one area. And kept getting shot out of this one area continuously, and finally his commanding officer told him, Lieutenant, you get out there and take care of that camp. I don't want any more trouble out of that area. Well, he did. He went out, lined everybody up, and shot them all. They, he took his, he took his, his uh, platoon out there, lined, them, lined a bunch of them up, shot them all. He shot the women. And I don't know if he shot the kids, but he shot the women. He shot the men. He shot the grandpas. And he came back in and said, yeah, you won't have any more trouble out there. Well, then along came a big to-do, and away he went. He got charged with shooting all these people and a war crime, and he went to jail and everything else. Name's Lieutenant Callie, and it, so, didn't work, it didn't work well. Speaking of stuff like that, did you ever hear the story of Pinkville in Vietnam? No. So... What's, what's that story? So, I the way I've been told this and I've watched the videos on and stuff. So the way they marked like uh, incidents with Viet Cong or whatever, they put a pink dot on the map, wherever they wrote this down, wherever, but they would have it. And I guess there was a town, a little small little town, just a bunch of hut thatch villages or whatever it was that it had a ridiculous amount of pink dots around it. But every time they went and cleared it, they found absolutely nothing. Every time they went through it, they found nothing and they, they couldn't figure out what it was. And so they, or they sent these guys, and I don't remember who they sent, 
or what they, you know, who it was, but they sent a company of guys and they just said, you know what, we're getting tired of this. So they just sent the guys in and they just exterminated the entire place. Killed that's, every single person there. That's probably Lieutenant Callie's. Yeah. Maybe. It, it might have been that, but yeah, this, they said yeah. it was a, it was one of the big ones that they heard about and a lot of people found out about it and they just tried to cover it up mm-hmm. and they were like, yeah, no, that, you know, this today never happened type of thing. Yeah. I'll tell you, the bad guys over there were uh, what they called the rock troops, were Republic of Korea. Mm-hmm. They had troops in there, and man, they were bad guys. They were, they were on our side, but they were nasty guys. They, when, they, when they caught the enemy and killed them, they'd cut, cut a head off and put the guy's head on a fence post. And boy, the rest of the Viet Cong learned, they better not come around this way. Learned real fast. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever uh, experience... Um the, I know they did this. I don't remember exactly the name. I think they called it the Phantom Tapes, where they would put these uh, tapes in Hueys and play it on loudspeaker, and it was like ghostly voices, like in Vietnamese, saying, you know, go yeah. home, stop fighting, stuff like that. Did you ever hear about any of that kind of stuff? Uh, I don't know if they did that. Uh, I don't know if they did that or not. That's called PSYOPs. Yeah. Uh, and and they, that's a technique, but I, I didn't do any of it. I I never did that, never carried a speaker. Nope, didn't do that. You did normal army stuff, blowing stuff up. Uh, yeah. God, I love America. PSYOPs, this, I know they did a lot of PSYOP stuff. We used, to, we used to run a, a peculiar mission, though. We, we ran a thing called People Sniffers. And they would take this geek, this geek science guy, and he would sit in the back of the helicopter, uh, a slick. He'd sit in the back of a slick with this uh, analyzer and put a hose strap a hose to the skid and this hose would inhale take in the air when we flew along so the slick would fly uh, real low level usually at night right above the trees and this guy's watching these meters and when the meters snapped over he would yell hot spot and we'd have two gunships behind the slick and the gunships would dive in and shoot rockets and we were supposed to wipe out the enemy that way because it was supposed to it, well, it was supposed to sense the ammonia from perspiration so it could smell people. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd go out the next day, we'd ask them, how'd we do? How'd we do last night? they go, ah, oh, didn't see any enemy, but you killed a lot of monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that'd be... Threat one, one Viet Cong, threat two, the monkeys. That's what you got to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, I think, are we... Where are we at? 112 right now. We're at 112. So I think okay, that's, that's going to be right there. Um I really appreciate you having me on, Bob. It was really great to hear your stories. It I really, was. Uh, really appreciate you for your service and everything you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Really appreciate you coming and actually talking to us about it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've tried to make it clear that joining the military and sometimes.